Today's scripture reading is taken from Second Peter uh, chapter three, verses ten through thirteen. And starting with verse ten. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and all the works and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons aren't you to be in all your holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the days of God, where the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the helmets shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth, where dwelleth righteousness. Good morning. How many of you have had a DNA test of some kind? Uh, Ancestry or 23andMe, any of those? Okay. Uh, I did that a little while back. Found out, uh, I think, 62% of my ancestry comes from England and Wales, 17% from Ireland and Scotland. wasn't a big surprise to me. I know sometimes we have surprises in that, but it wasn't a big surprise. I knew a little bit about my story in my family. I knew in the 1700s, the Shields moved from Ireland, at least my branch, from Ireland to, to London. And Peter Shields, who was born there... I came to the United States in the late 1700s, actually during the Revolutionary War, uh, to fight on the other side. And uh, there's a story about him, whether he defected after getting here or if he uh, uh, was a prisoner of war. Needless to say, at the end of the war, he stayed in the United States and settled in Virginia. And eventually, over the next couple of generations, the Shields migrated a little bit to the west and to the north, up into Indiana, and that's where my grandparents and great-grandparents were. Um, on the other hand, the Wheelers, my mom's side of the family, they came across the Atlantic about the same time, but settled in the south. Uh, first in the area around Alabama, and then across the south to Mississippi, and finally, in those generations of my grandparents, even a little bit further west, uh, settling in Texas. And that's where the Shields and the Wheelers stayed until 1942, when Guy Shields, my dad, was serving in the Army at Fort MacArthur here at San Pedro, and Millie Wheeler had just recently arrived from Lubbock, Texas. She was working in a restaurant off base. My dad walked in. A year later, they were married. In 1946, Linda, my sister, was born. And five years after that, as one born out of due season, I came along. And I lived for the next 68 years in that family with those parents, that sister, and all of the relatives that were a part of that, helping to shape me and mold me into whatever it is that I am today. That's my story. That's my story. That's where I come from. That's my ancestry. That's my DNA. That's who I am. And there's a real sense today in, in which that has truly shaped me and defines my identity. We have a story. 
We have a story. And I'm not talking about the story that begins in 1949 and the beginning of the congregation here, although certainly the DNA of that story has intermixed with all of us. That's certainly a part of us. I'm talking about a story that goes much further back than that, that goes way, way further back than that. And as we talk about that story today, I'd just like to say, and we'll come back to it at the end, everyone lives within a story. Everyone on the face of the earth is living within the story that they believe to be true. We're about to tell our story. And our story, we have the audacity to say, is the true story. And we'll talk about why we're saying that a little bit later. But it is the story, and it is the story that defines our identity. It is the story that shapes our character and that truly uh, motivates us to live the way that we do. So let's take a few minutes to, first of all, tell the story, our story, God's story. It begins, our story, our heritage, our family begins with an eternal God, a God who has always been, who brought forth the creation, the creation of everything that exists. He creates the environment of the the sky and the seas and the land and the rivers and the lakes, and then He populates all of those environments with the stars and the planets and the heavenly bodies. And then the fish and the birds and the creeping things and mammals. And finally, at the crown of that creation, He creates mankind in His own image. Male and female creating them. Adam and Eve are the first two, as we know in the story. And they're created to have dominion over all of the rest of creation. They are the crown of creation, but even more so than that, they are created in the image of the living God and are created to know God, to have a relationship with God, to live in a fellowship with God. And the plan is, essentially, that they can live in the presence of God there. They're placed in an amazing garden, a garden that they are to tend that has everything they need, even the tree of life, so that they can eat and truly live forever. And that's when the world falls into crisis. Because in that garden, they only have one prohibition. And that prohibition is that they are not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And an adversary comes along a serpent. He comes to stir up doubts. He comes to plant questions. He, he comes to get humankind and Adam and Eve to question God. And he says, you know, is it really true that you can't eat from all the trees in the garden here? And they, Eve says, well, no. It's, uh, we can eat from all of the trees, all of the fruit in the garden. There's just one tree that we can't eat from, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if we eat of that tree, we're going to die. And the serpent says, no, no, no. You're not going to die. God knows that when you eat that tree, when you eat the fruit from that tree, your eyes are going to be opened. And you're going to become like God's. You can know good and evil. And deceived and filled with a desire for more and the planting of doubts and with perhaps possibilities that they might have longed for, they take the fruit and they eat it. Eve takes it, deceived by the serpent, hands it to her husband, they eat it, and it's true, their eyes are opened. Their eyes are opened to sin. 
and to shame and to guilt and to death and to separation from their God. And all of a sudden, they're cut off from Him. They're placed outside of the garden. They're banned from fellowship with God, at least in that intimate way where they walked and talked with Him in the garden. And the tree of life is no longer available to them. And what seems to be even worse is that the entire creation, this amazing creation that God has brought about for them to live in and have dominion over, the entire creation is spoiled by sin and begins a process of corruption and decay and everything undergoes a curse. Because sin has entered the world. And at that point, everything would have been gone. Everything would have been lost except for a God who loved His creation so much that He would not give up on us and He would not leave His perfect creation to be plundered by that usurper serpent Satan himself. And so God takes action. And in the Scriptures, He enters into covenants. He enters into covenants with people that He might draw people closer to Him and eventually bring about their forgiveness and redemption. And also He begins to work to redeem creation itself. It starts with a covenant that He makes with a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where He calls him to leave his country and his homeland. And He tells Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I will show you, a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. And you're going to have a son. And through your seed, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through Abraham's family, and particularly we'll find out, through one descendant in particular, God will bless the entire world. That's his intent. His intent is to bring creation back to him. To bring everyone into fellowship with him. And that covenant passes down from Abraham to his son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And Israel has twelve sons. In a time of famine, they go down to Egypt where they stay and grow into a mighty nation. But a Pharaoh rises up and enslaves them until God sends the deliverer Moses to bring them up out of Egypt. He delivers them with a mighty hand. He shows His power over all the gods of Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea and begins the march toward the land of promise that had been given to Abraham. But there they are in the wilderness. They stop at Mount Sinai and they camp there where God now invites all of Abraham's family, the the hundreds of thousands of them, to now enter into a covenant with him as a nation of people, these 12 tribes of Israel. And God says, "I I will be your God. You will be my people. I'll make you a kingdom of priests. You will be my chosen possession throughout all the nations of the world. And they, as Israel, they will answer His holy calling to be a different people so that the nations of the world can understand who God is because God's purpose is unchanging. He wants to restore fellowship with every human being created in His image on the planet. And He chooses to do so at this point through Israel and to bless them. As Israel then takes possession of that land of promise that was given to Abraham they long for a king as the other nations have kings and God places upon the throne a man after his own heart a man named David and he enters a further covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 he tells David that he will raise up a dynasty out of David and that David's sons will continue to rule on the throne 
for the years to come, and that ultimately one of David's sons will rule on the throne forever. And the promise is made and the covenant is made with David and his dynasty. For the next 400 years, Israel struggles to be faithful to this covenant that they've made with God. They are seduced by the nations. They turn at times to idols. The nation divides. God sends prophets to them, but they turn away from those prophets. God is calling them back to covenant. And Israel gets caught up in somebody else's story. Israel goes over to the stories of the nations and begins to believe their story and live in that. And the prophets are trying to call them back to covenant and call them back to their identity. And as you know, there are occasional times of repentance and reform, but they finally give away to disobedience. And the nation comes under the judgment of God. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple, the house of God, the place of sacrifice, is torn down one stone upon from another. And the people of God are taken into captivity as prisoners and strangers in the land of Babylon. And there they are for 70 years. But God will not forget His people. His love is unrelenting. He brings them back to the land of Israel, having disciplined them through this judgment. And the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt, and the temple is rebuilt, and the walls of the city are rebuilt. And things begin to happen in Israel. There is now a new longing that is coming about through the prophets. A longing for a new day, for a new covenant that God is going to bring to His people and to the world. A covenant that will both fulfill the old covenant that they're living under, but will also in so many ways surpass that covenant. God is going to send a forerunner, a messenger, who's going to prepare the way for this coming day, for this coming of His own kingdom and this new covenant that God will enter into. And upon the work of that forerunner, another will come. The anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Christ. Christ will come, who will be the son of David, who will be the seed of Abraham. This forerunner will open the way to the coming of the Christ. And the Christ will bring an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of the living God that will make things new on the earth. And that's exactly what God does in the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to this world. But who could have imagined? Who could have imagined that it would be God Himself who comes to do what must be done? That God Himself, in His Son Jesus, He Himself will come here into this fallen creation that He made so perfectly. He will enter into this. He will live in the midst of it. A dying world, a decaying world that He might bear our punishment and open the way back up to our Father in Heaven. Jesus is conceived within the womb of a young woman named Mary. But Mary's a virgin. She's engaged to be married. But the Scriptures tell us that it was the Holy Spirit who brought about the conception in her womb. So that this child that's going to be born from her is truly the Son of God. Mary and Joseph, her betrothed, are from the family of David and are in the line of Abraham. And so their child is born. The Apostle John 
speaks of this coming together of the eternal realm and, and earth itself as God comes to us to bring about our redemption. In John chapter 1, verse 1, which was read to us a little while ago, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. So we read of this eternal Word that is with God and is, is the creative power of the entire universe. And in verse 14, John tells us, And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on to say in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so in Christ, in His Son, God Himself comes here to this earth full of grace and truth, revealing the very nature of God to us. And He lives among us. And here's what's so hard for us to grapple with. He is one of us. He is born in the flesh. He is a human being. Yes, born of the Holy Spirit. And it's, we, it's impossible for us to totally get our mind around that. But we understand that He lives here as one of us. And He begins this amazing ministry. And the ministry of Jesus pushes back against all of the evil and all of the sin and everything that the curse brings upon the world. Jesus comes into the world to say things are changing. Something new is happening. And He pushes back. What I mean by that is He comes and He just forgives sin. From him, from His own being, He pronounces the forgiveness of sin by His name and by His power. He pushes back against the presence of sin in the world. He heals the sick to show that God has come to this world to push back against all of the death and the, and, the, and the illness and everything that has come upon this world because of our rebellion in the first place. He casts demons out of people to show Satan is not going to be prince of this world much longer. And he pushes against that power to show that when the Messiah comes, things are about to change. And yes, he raises the dead. He raises people out of the grave. To say, the power of God is here. Things are happening. Things are changing. This is nothing less than the kingdom of God in breaking onto this earth and this planet with a foretaste of what eternity will be like when these enemies are dealt with once and for all. And then we get to that great turning point in the story. It is the climax of the story. Jesus dies on the cross for us. As Peter will write, he himself bears in his body our sins on the tree. Our sins in his body. The prophet Isaiah said it, Peter will say it again in 1 Peter chapter 2, it's by his wounds, it's by his wounds that you and I are healed. It's by the shedding of his blood it was His willingness to take on your sin and my sin that we can be forgiven of sin and can come back into a relationship 
with God. This is what Jesus comes to do. And it is the turning point. It shows that things are going to change. That something different has happened. And that new covenant is here and coming. He is raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And He overcomes sin and death and the grave so that through Him everyone can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And there's a new community that comes together after this. A community that's centered around the Christ. Our brother talked about that community of the church that comes because those who knew Jesus, His closest apostles, begin to proclaim the good news of His saving work. They proclaim Him as the Son of David. They proclaim Him as the servant who suffered on behalf of the sins of the world. They proclaim Him to be the singular seed of Abraham through whom the curse can be turned back. And those who come to believe that, who will stake their heart and their life and their soul on it, they confess Him as Lord and God. They turn from sin. They're baptized into Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven. The Spirit of God comes upon them. And their lives are made new. This is the church. This is Israel. The spiritual Israel upon whom the Spirit of the living God is poured out, and as God's chosen people, the church is now to carry out the very same responsibility essentially entrusted to Israel, to live in this world in such a way, to live such holy lives that people look at us who is behind our story, to be proclaimers of who our God is, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a people who are possessed by God, to be a holy nation of people and to proclaim the good news of eternal life in the name of Jesus Christ to a world that's lost in sin. And this we will do until the coming of the Lord. Jesus was with His apostles after His resurrection, and He taught them for 40 days, and then He ascended into the heavens. And the angel said to the apostles, Why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you've seen him go. And so the scriptures tell us the rest of the story. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible. We who are living on the earth will be changed. We'll be gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. There will be a judgment before the throne of the living God. And there will be eternal destinies given by the judgment of God and Jesus Christ Himself. Those of heaven and hell based on our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And as Peter wrote so eloquently and our brother read to us a moment ago, the final, the final moment will be the creations of new heavens and new earth, another perfect environment, but sin and death are gone. And we live as we were meant to live from the beginning in the eternal presence and glory of our God and Creator. And so we wait faithfully until that moment. That's our story. This is our story. It's the story of the Bible. It's God's story. And what we claim, what we're saying is, this is reality. This is, this is true. This is really what's going on in the world. This is what the universe is about. This is it. This is the story. And by, by saying that, we're also making a claim. We're making a claim that all the other stories are false. 
Every other story other than the story of God redeeming the world in Christ, all all other stories are false. And we don't make that claim based on something about us as if we've just come to such great knowledge and we're the, you know, we can kind of just tell everybody. No, we make this audacious claim, but we do so in the name of Jesus Christ and in accordance with the word of the living God, not in us. It's not that we've somehow figured this out and we've put this together. But God has revealed this, and this is the story we proclaim. This is the story. This is the only hope the world has. Do you believe that? This is the only hope. This is the only hope your neighbor has. This is the only hope your family has. This is the story. This is the truth. It's what gives us meaning. It tells us where things are headed. And that story shapes our lives. It affects us on every level. That's what a person's story does. And we all are living within a story. To illustrate this, consider for a moment that you believe another story. Consider for a moment that you believe a story that starts with a big bang and with evolution and with natural selection and the survival of the fittest And there is no creator. There is no God behind anything. There's no real design or purpose. It's just what is happening based on natural law and the existence of a material universe. And so there is no mind behind it. There's no thought behind it. There's no person behind that. Everything in this world that goes on is just a result of biological or chemical physical change. It's not going anywhere in particularly except wherever those things will mathematically or scientifically take it. That's just, that's destiny. And we all come through this and we rise up however we did and we, we die and there's the, this is it. This is the reality. This is the ultimate reality. That's going to impact your life. If you really live in that story, I mean, if you wholeheartedly jump right into the middle of that story and claim that story for yourself, you're going to be very hard-pressed to determine any kind of moral system or standard to live by or any kind of purpose or significance to life. Am I simply the highest evolved mammal at the present time after millions of years. If that's what I am, the truth of the matter is this. There's really no reason for me to live a particular way. There is no ought. There is no purpose. There isn't... And and what happens at this point is nobody is really willing to live in that world. Nobody is really willing to live in that world. And I think sometimes people who live in this story don't want to live in that story completely and they kind of co-opt the morality part of the story in which we find ourselves or they live in a nation where it has a prevailing moral system based on that. But I think, I think you need to embrace your story. I think you need to embrace your story wholeheartedly. And if that's your story, then you need to double down on it and you need to live in it 
And you need to say there is nothing but there is no God, there is no eternity, there is really no basis for moral values. And true, true atheists know. They've tried, they've tried, they've tried to come up with reasons and arguments, but they can't really nail one down because honestly, if it's just a biological chemical going on. Who's to say what's right and wrong and what ought to be done? And it's just about what continues and what exists. I just want to say whatever story you live or whatever story you believe in, you accept it 100% and you live in it. Whatever the blessings, whatever the problems, you embrace it. Own up to your story. All of us. I'm talking to all of us here. Or What if I'm created? And right there, if you just stop right there for a minute. What if I'm created? Wow. Do you see the difference? Do you just see the difference right there? What if I came up through this biological change that nobody had planned and just, boom, here we are finally and all the changes in the millions and billions of years. But what if I'm created? Such different possibilities, such different identity. Created, created by who? What if you're created by an eternal God who created you for the very purpose of knowing reality and knowing Him and living in a relationship with Him and being blessed by Him and, 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 and living forever with Him and taking on His nature and, and, and stepping into an eternal fellowship that He is known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and He invites you into that. He creates you for that. Does that make life just a little bit different? Does that story just say something a little bit different about who we are? Just starting with that, that that God, when I couldn't be perfect and holy as He is holy, He Himself left the heavenly heavenly element of the story and came down and entered the story here on earth to redeem me, paying the price for my sins with the blood of His own Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Do you you see the love of God? Do you see the, the legs that God is? What if you're created by that God? What if you're created by that eternal Father who loves you so much that there's nothing He withholds from you? And He wants to bless you and He wants you to know Him. And He wants you to live life to the full on this earth in relationship with Him and with others who have faith in Him. Oh, my. (laughs) You know who you are. You know who you are. You know what's important in life. You know what's right and wrong. Because of who God is. You have this desire to be holy because God's holy. That's enough. That's enough. You don't have... My God is holy. I want to be like Him. I want to, I want to reflect His nature in my life because He's been so good to me. Why do we value integrity? Why do we value people who keep their promises? Because we have a God who is completely true, who has never broken a single word or promise that He has made. Why is humility at the top of our value system and our our character traits? Humility of all things. Why do we want to put other people ahead of ourselves and put their needs... That is so backwards in our world. I'll put... Put the needs of other people. Consider their needs before yourself. Why do we do that? Because we have a God who considered our needs over His. We have a God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're called to be humble because Jesus Christ humbled Himself to come to bring about salvation for you and me. Why do we forgive? Why don't we hold grudges? Why don't we take revenge? Because we have a God who has forgiven us so much, we can't believe it. We're overwhelmed with His grace and mercy. How can I withhold forgiveness from you? 
when I've been forgiven so much. This is my story. This is who I belong to. This is what my life is about. That's why we serve. Because we have a God who's got down on his knees in a room full of arrogant men and washed their feet. Because none of them was willing to do it. And that's why we serve. Because our God serves. Our God cares and He's compassionate. Even suffering. Even suffering has purpose. I wish we had a whole lesson for this. But suffering in our story has value and purpose and meaning. Because it shapes us and causes us to be persevering. And it makes us more like our Lord Jesus. And it inspires our hope in the promises of God. And we know what's yet to be because Jesus is coming back to renew everything. And until that day, God gives us breath and opportunities to share His grace and salvation with those who are either deceived or maybe just haven't heard. Maybe they just haven't truly heard. And to tell them the story that can impact their life. How needed is that? A lot of tragic things happen in the world every day. Last Sunday, there was a tragic event, especially for people in our part of the world, especially for people who are interested in sports when the helicopter crashed and Kobe Bryant and his daughter and several others perished. Um, you don't have to be a basketball fan or whatever. It may not have impacted you the way it impacted so many others. But this last week, it's been really interesting. Because a lot of people have been forced to deal with things like death that don't often like to talk about death. And tragedy. And why things happen the way that they do. We live in a culture, especially where men are not concerned to have, or men are not encouraged to have these kinds of conversations. We just kind of shove it away and we don't talk about it. That's kind of the, the cultural thing. You just push that. You don't bring that kind of stuff up in public. But then this sports hero dies who had apparently, you know, for some people such hope for the future. And people are having these conversations. And it was remarkable. Social media was flooded with conversations and people sharing their feelings and their thoughts. Sports talk radio, I turned it on one day and it's like every, every, everything was just going to be talking about this. How do we go? And, and what, I, what I discovered for so many of the people who were in these conversations, their story had no words for what was going on. They had nothing to say. They, they're trying. And platitudes. All the, oh, it's time to pull together. And all these, trying to say these positive things and these sayings. Of, yeah, it's bringing the city together. And we've got to push forward because Kobe would want us to push forward. All of the, and people are doing their best. And I'm listening to this. And I'm thinking, the stories these people live in have no hope. They have no future. They don't know, they don't know what's going on. They're, 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 and I, I, my heart was breaking for them as I listened to so many of these, con- these conversations. Because it was hopeless. It was just hopeless. And I was thinking, our story has the words. 
Our story has the truth. We can talk about these things. We have a word from God about these things. These are the kinds of conversations in our world we need to be getting plugged into. We need to find ways. When, when our neighbor is struggling with a problem, and they, they don't have the words for it, they don't have, because they don't have the story for it, they don't have that view of God for it, we're there to talk to them about who our God is and the blessing that God can be in their life. When we have family members who are struggling to understand what's going on in their lives, that's where we can come in and we can talk to them. And I, just to begin those conversations of telling them about... Our approach, how God is such a blessing to us. There are so many people who are hurting in this world. And we were just singing a few moments ago about telling the story. It said, some have never heard. And some may have heard about Jesus or whatever, but they've never really heard the story as it applies to their life and to the situation that they're in. And as we find people around us who are struggling for answers or for meaning or significance, and all they have, there's nothing, there's nothing in the worldview that we're immersed in. There's nothing in it that gives hope. Not the, not the worldview that is pervasive in our, in our society today, but we have a story that will light their way, that will change their lives, that will save their souls. Let us tell that story. It's the story of God's love. It's the story of the cross of Christ. It's the story of a Redeemer. It's the story of the greatest lover who has given everything for relationship with his creation. It's a beautiful story. It's the true story. It's the story that gives people meaning and focus and purpose in life. Let's take every opportunity to enter into the conversations around us or to create those opportunities to tell the story of Jesus and the story of God's love. And let's be careful not to be seduced by the stories around us. If you're not a disciple today, we've shared a bit of our story. The story of God's love and grace, the story of Jesus Christ. We would just say God longs for you to know him, to live in his blessing, to accept the challenge of holy living, of purposeful servanthood in this world to be a light to those who need the good news of Jesus Christ. God longs for you. And it's amazing how God, God puts it now into our hands. We can just step right into the story through our faith in Him. We just step right in and we become part of that story. If you've never confessed Jesus as the Son of God, come today and confess Him. Turn from sin in your life. Be baptized into Christ. Be forgiven of your sins. Be filled with the Spirit of God. That's the renewal. That's the, the, that's the beginning of that whole new thing that God's going to do one day for the entire universe. And it can start in you today. What a wonderful story we have. Let's live in it. And let's proclaim it. If there are any need to come to the Father today, we invite you in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing together. Dyson Phillips comes forward this morning. He's been attending uh, for some time now with uh, Megan Sellers, uh, his girlfriend. They've been studying together, and he's come to the realization that he needs Christ as his Savior. And so I'm going to ask him to come up here. Dyson, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and Lord of your life? Yes. God bless you for that confession.
We're now going to take you back and baptize you. Let's go ahead and do that. I told the class it was going to be a short sermon. I apologize for that. I just can't be counted on to keep my word. But um, I just wanted to say what we've just witnessed is a young man changing his allegiance, entering into a new story in his life, making a commitment to his God and Savior. In our story, there's no more important moment in your life than this moment. And I just want to make sure that we as a family remember that. And I think as we're about to sing, we're going to be praying. Don't rush out. Don't get caught up in conversations about other things. Come up to the front. Let's get around Dyson and pray for him and welcome him. And uh, just affirm him as a brother in Christ. And one who walks in the story with us now uh, that will help us along the way and we can help him. It is a wonderful story of love. And let's, uh, let's shower our love on our brother today.